Tonight I want to talk with you about disappointment. Disappointment. Not just any disappointment, like, hey, I'm disappointed the U.S. got knocked out in the round of 16 in the World Cup. But a specific kind of disappointment and a more serious kind. It is the disappointment that you and I feel when we have hopes and those are unrealized. When we have expectations that have fallen flat. Kind of like the helium balloon about seven days after the birthday <laughs> that slowly sank to the floor and lies there in a rumple. Maybe it's your feeling, uh, I thought by now, and then fill in the blank, I'd be at a different place in my work. Or I thought by now I'd be in a relationship, or I thought I would be extricated from a relationship, or I thought we'd have had more time together. Or I thought we'd be enjoying life instead of going to the doctors, or whatever it may be. As Fantine sings in Les Mis, I dreamed a dream. In time gone by, when hopes were high and life worth living. And now those expectations, unmet as they are, are affecting your faith. If you are honest with yourself, you feel disappointment. You feel disappointment with something, God, the church, faith, prayer. And you, no wonder you're in pain and God has not shown up as you know he could and you thought he would. So you're not as sure about things as you once were. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, I would guess that many of you have experienced this, what I'm talking about right here at some point. Not everyone. Spiritual journeys are different. I have. Maybe you're there right now. But whether you're feeling that right now or you may find yourself there in the future, tonight I want to answer this question. What does Jesus say to the disappointed? We actually know that. The Bible gives us this amazing case study when someone who follows Jesus longer than almost everyone else, who is clearly one of his most devoted followers, then hits the wall of disappointment. And he's not sure he can keep on following Jesus. Let's see how Jesus responds to him and therefore how he responds to you or me when we're in that place. I found it surprising. If you turn then to your gospel reading, Matthew 11, it says that John the Baptist was in prison. In prison. He's up in Herod's fortress out on the east side of the Dead Sea. We have archaeological ruins, but we don't know exactly what the cell was like, but it was probably a typical Roman cell. And if that's the case, it's dark. You're in there and you lose track of time. You don't know what time it is. You have chains on your wrists and ankles. The smell from the couple of uh, latrines or whatever are, is unbearable. And so every moment that John is sitting there is a visceral reminder. John, you don't have to be here. Um, All you have to do is take back what you said about Herod stealing his brother's wife. 
All you got to do is stop gathering crowds that could become too radical and get out of control. And you could be let out into the sunlight and get on with your life. It's that simple. And while John's stuck in prison, Jesus has begun doing his work. And so John's hearing things, but he's locked up here. He hasn't seen it for himself. He can't see it. So verse 3, he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else? Those sad words, we've been expecting. We were hoping. John's like, I was hoping. I thought it was you. And Jesus can feel John's disappointment coming through the question. He can even tell John's thinking of giving up on him because he tells him in verse 6, John, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. We don't get offended because of the way I do things. So how is it that uh, Jesus' greatest disciple is now his greatest doubter? You know, how did his cousin become his questioner? It, it, it was never like this before. If we take out of the conversation Mary, Jesus' mother, John was the very first person who ever recognized Jesus. He was still in his mother's womb. And he leapt for joy. He could already say, this is the one. And nobody has believed in, at this point in, John, in Jesus more than John. John said things of him like this. He is the chosen one of God. Or this, Jesus has come from heaven and is greater than anyone else. Now he's not sure what happened. Well, most likely, here's where Jesus started to disappoint John. John was waiting for Jesus to bring the axe and bring the fire. He had gone out publicly and said, Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees, and every tree that doesn't produce good fruit chopped down, thrown into the fire. I mean, and I get that, John. We all want that. We want a Messiah who will get rid of drug pushers, arms dealers, child abusers. We want somebody to do something about the person who stole my friend's ID when she was in the hospital for cancer treatments. And that hasn't happened. John is sitting here in this dark prison and he can't help thinking, why is someone as evil as Herod still sitting on the throne and I'm here in his prison? I thought the Messiah would cut down that wormy tree and throw it on the fire of God's judgment and Jesus has done nothing like that. I'm eating scraps while Herod's upstairs and I can hear the banquet sometimes as he's getting drunk. And the disappointment hits John just full force. He's like, I devoted my whole life to this Messiah. I never cut my hair. I never took a drink. But there is no axe. There's no fire. I don't know if you found yourself at some point in a prison, a relational prison, a financial prison, a vocational prison, a medical prison, a place where you thought, Jesus, I thought you were going to fix this. I thought you were going to free me. I thought I'd be out of here. Why am I still sitting here cold and in the dark and in chains? And, and maybe you're even where you are because, just like John, you did the right thing. 
Well, when Jesus hears, should we look for someone else? Man, I know how I would feel if I'd heard that. He knows what's in John's heart. And so what does he say to this disappointed person who's a believer, but maybe not for a lot longer? Well, as I listen in on that conversation, it seems to me that Jesus says three things to John, and each one is a gift. The first one I noticed, and this is what really stood out to me this week, I had never seen it in all the years of looking at this, is what Jesus says after John has voiced his disappointment. So John's put it all out there. It's like, should we keep following you? I'm not sure. Jesus speaks honor. He honors John. He affirms him. Look at this in verse 7. And I'll, I'll paraphrase just a little bit. He tells people, Look, John, it was not some flimsy reed getting swaying around. This guy is a man of principle. He's like a rock. And he's not sold out. The reason why he wears odd clothes is because that way he doesn't owe anything to anybody. He can speak the complete truth to power at whatever time he needs to. He's not a politician. He's a prophet. And he's more than a prophet. And Jesus wraps up and says, he's the greatest person who's ever lived astonishing now what uh, amazed me about this is here's a guy who's just expressed his disappointment in jesus and jesus lavishes honor on what who john really is and what john's about he he dignifies the disappointed and i was like wow usually i feel bad about myself when i'm disappointed or doubting Maybe you feel that way about yourself, but you know what? Jesus is not disappointed in you that you're feeling disappointment pointed in him. If you're doubting or questioning, Jesus is not taken aback. He's not like, how could you? He, he, he honors that person. He knows what's in their heart and he honors them. I, I wonder if somebody needed to hear that tonight. It's safe to bring him your doubts, your, the pain of your disappointment. And then Jesus loves John enough to not leave him there, though. The next thing he speaks to John after honor is evidence. He offers John evidence. Verse 4, Jesus told the messengers that John sent, go back to John and just tell him what you've heard. Tell him what you've seen. People blind from birth are now seen. People who could never walk are walking. People with skin diseases, cured. People with lifelong hearing impairments, hearing. Dead are raised up to life. And the good news is being preached to the poor. Jesus says, I'm doing what Isaiah prophesied, which was in our Old Testament reading tonight. Plus, Jesus adds, dead people are being brought back. Talk to the young man who was in the funeral procession. I stopped it. I told him to get up, and he's still around. Go talk to him. And John, one thing, I love how Jesus almost climaxes with this as his greatest miracle. The people I preach to are the poor. My heart is for them, John, just like yours has been. So Jesus offers evidence. And if John is upset about what Jesus has not done, could he also take in what Jesus has done? 
And that really spoke to me because as a believer in Jesus, just like all of you, I see situations where Jesus has done remarkable things, miracles. And I also see situations where Jesus did not intervene to fix or change that situation. Why one? Why not the other? I don't know. But what I do know is Jesus says, if you want evidence, there's evidence. Take a look. Some of you may know uh, Lee Phillips, who's a therapist here. She serves at Alliance Clinical in Wheaton. And with Lee's permission, uh, I have the honor of sharing her story. She says, in August of 2012, I had a persistent pain in my back. And I wondered, maybe I have a gallstone. Instead, I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, stage four inoperable. The cancer had escaped my pancreas and spread to my liver. My liver was filled with cancer spots. I was in my mid-50s with a healthy lifestyle, rarely sick, no family history, and my youngest was leaving in weeks to start college. Now my life expectancy was six to nine months. Only one percent of people with pancreatic cancer will live for five years. And I wondered if that was still true, and I actually Googled it, and it, it's still the case. Uh, so I began 12 rounds of chemotherapy and a clinical trial at the University of Chicago. I was scared to death and getting sicker every day. About this time, God gave me Exodus 14.14 as his word for my cancer. Moses spoke to the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. So, uh, Lee says, every time I was in a group of Christian friends, I asked them to lay hands on me and pray for my healing. I was down front after every Sunday service seeking prayer. Before I would go to chemos, which was on Monday, we had people come to our house to pray. By Christmas, which is, what, five months later from her diagnosis, I had made it through five of the 12 prescribed rounds of chemo. I could barely stand, eat, or think in a complete sentence. I looked like a concentration camp victim. I did not feel like praying. At just this moment, another friend said to me, Lee, seek out people with gifts of healing and have them also pray over you. God has gifted the church and you need the gift of healing. So that led her to several visits to a place called Christian Healing Ministries in Jacksonville, Florida. And here's what she writes. Doctors expect that pancreatic cancer will come back within a few months of finishing chemo. My story is that my blood count slowly began shifting back toward normal after each visit for healing prayer. Healing was not instantaneous, but my tumor shrank after each visit. 2022 marks 10 years since my cancer diagnosis. I have normal blood counts. CT scans show no visible cancer in my liver. My pancreas has scar tissue, but no evidence of active tumor. My oncologist at the University of Chicago, Dr. Polite, was asked at a Stanford oncology conference, have you ever seen a medical miracle? And he said, yes. 
And his resident was there and was like, Lee Phillips? He's like, yes. And Lee finishes, I have known mercy and healing. It makes me love Christ so deeply. And then she adds, I'd be happy to help others. In fact, the night that she sent me this full account, she was meeting with two people who are sick to pray for them. So you and I, friends, we see unanswered situations. We do. But do we also take in the evidences of Jesus' power? I, I wish I could introduce people in their, in their moments of disappointment to some of the people I know who show me Jesus' miraculous power. And my wife and I and her sister who's here tonight, we all know a guy who was a bar brawler. <laughs> And he invited us to a party, dinner party, for his 20th year of sobriety. He now turns around and helps others. Um, I could introduce you to so many people who grew up uh, belittled, verbally abused, utterly lacking confidence, and are now living, fulfilling vocational roles they would never have been able to dream of until Jesus met them and healed them. I, I, I know a doctor who only because of Jesus, it gave up the track here, which would have been quite lucrative practice, and is in the highlands of Papua New Guinea serving, serving there. So when we are feeling disappointed in him, friend, Jesus does offer us evidence. It's always there if we want it. Now, maybe what confuses us is this. Jesus will give us evidence, but what he usually does not give us is an explanation. There's evidence, but not an explanation. At least he doesn't give one to John. I mean, he could have said to John, well, you see, John, there's going to be a great judgment on evil people like Herod Antipas, but that will be when I come again. But right now, it works different than what you thought because my love is so great, so beyond anything you could ever fathom, that I'm going to take all that judgment on me. The axe will cut down the tree, but it'll be the tree I hang on. The, the fire will burn, but it'll be the fiery ordeal I go through. It's the death I'm going to go through. It's not time for the axe and the fire to come on the wicked. It's going to come on me for the wicked so that forever wicked people like Herod can be forgiven and healed and restored. And Herod, if he wanted to, could come back to God. But how could John ever understand that? It won't all become clear until a year and a half later when Jesus gets arrested, just like John, is held under guard, just like John, gets sent off to his death by Herod, just like John, but three days later walks out of the graveyard. So when you and I feel disappointed, we just naturally go, why? Why, Lord? And in my life, I seldom get an explanation. <laughs> Usually what Jesus says instead is, here's evidence. Here's glimpses of my glory. Can you see it? Advent is a time of waiting, friends. It's a time where we wait in the dark. And that we learn that skill right here. Because a lot of life is waiting in the dark. Seeing what is fulfilled, but seeing it at a distance and still waiting for it to be even more fully brought in. All right, let me move toward the close. Jesus offers honor. He offers evidence. And finally, he offers John a blessing. Verse 6. God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. So much blessing awaits you, John, if you'll stay faithful to the end, if you will not let that pain of your prison pull you away from me. 
So let's return. Where are you tonight? Are you, are you feeling disappointment in, in the church? Why aren't they healthier? Why aren't they better? Or in faith, in prayer, in God? Are you disappointed that you're in a cramped, dark space within your life and that Jesus has not intervened? Here's the question. Are you going to let your disappointment disconnect you from Jesus Christ? Many people are choosing that these days, friends, and it seems like the pace is increasing. Uh, interesting to me, Arthur Farnsley, a research prophet, IUPUI, suggests that this is mostly white flight. Quoting him, white Mormons, white mainliners, white Catholics, and white evangelicals are headed one way in America, out of religion. But the rest of America is, taken together, headed the other way. And in the rest of the world, he says, quote, the world will get steadily more religious in the next century, not only due to growth in birth rates in Muslim countries, but growth of Christianity in the global south and growth of Christianity in China. But where are you tonight? Jesus offers us a blessing. But it's a blessing, it's a conditional blessing, right? It's, it rests upon the one who doesn't take offense in Jesus. Now John heard those words and he stayed faithful to the end. Now it's our turn. You know, I've been following Jesus now for uh, 48 years. And there were two times in those years where I was here at this moment, where I was this close to giving it all up. One was uh, following the miscarriage of a child that we really longed for and prayed for. And the other was following a hellacious church split. And now, without even eternal, <laughs> the gift of the eternal blessing that comes to those who stay faithful, even just now, looking back, I can see what I could not see then, which is actually, I need Jesus more than ever. What would my life be like without Jesus? I need caring church community more than ever. Oh my goodness. Had I bailed, I would have lost out on all of that. And I don't know what kind of person I would become, but I'm pretty sure I would have become more self-oriented, more self-focused. I would have chosen for myself and other people get out of my way. I could easily have made a junkyard out of my old age. So now I look back and I go, man, I'm blessed. I'm so blessed that I didn't give it up, that I didn't give it in. And Jesus promises to you and to me and everyone who's disappointed in him this amazing blessing. God blesses those who do not fall away because of me.